2: As audio technology has advanced, so is our love affair with deep bass. Dr. Paul Jason's book, Low End Theory, Bass, Bodies, and the Materiality of Sonic Experience, probes a much-mythologized field of bass and low-frequency sound. It begins in music, but quickly moves far beyond, following vibratory phenomena across time, disciplines, and disparate cultural spheres. Dr. Jason asks what it is about BASE that has fascinated us for so long and made it such a busy site of biotechnological experimentation, driving developments in science, technology, the arts, and even religious culture. The guiding question is not so much what we make of BASE, but what it makes of us. How does it undulate and unsettle? How does it incite? How does it generate the phenomenon of bodily thought? As one critic puts it, Low-end theory, quote, provides us with an ontology of bass. I really like that. With its focus on sound structuring agency and the multi-sensory aspects of sonic experience, Dr. Jason's work stands to make a transformative contribution to the study of music and sound, while pushing scholarship on affect, materiality, and the senses into new fertile territory. As a fellow bass head and former rave kid, I was especially excited to have the chance to speak with him about his book. Dr. Paul Jason received a B.A. in History from Lakehead University, and did his M.A. in Canadian Studies and Ph.D. in Cultural Mediations at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Currently, he's an instructor in Music and Communication Studies at Carleton and teaches courses in Digital, Visual, and Audio Culture, as well as Digital Media Production. He has a professional background in web and multimedia development and graphic design, and he's also been a DJ, with recordings featured on radio and podcasts in several countries, and a sound designer, having collaborated with architects and cartographers on large-scale multimedia projects.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to, the, to New Books in Music. My name Carolyn Evans. I'm usually the host of the New Books in Secularism channel, but I recently ran across the book I have here today, Low End Theory, Base, Bodies, and the Materiality of Sonic Experience by Dr. Paul Jason. And I enjoyed it so much, I thought it was important to feature on the New Books Network. So here we are. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I want to start by giving a little background for how I found your book, because it all started when we connected on academia.edu. And for anybody who's not familiar with it, this is a fantastic social network for academics and aspiring academics, by the way. Um, So I downloaded one of your articles for a paper I was working on, and we ended up getting into a conversation about the topic. You very kindly gave me some excellent advice on additional sources, including low-end theory. And I ended up loving your book and using your concept of the materiality of base as the theoretical framework for my paper. That's great to hear. Thank you. So thank you very much. (laughs) So uh, uh, shall we begin by perhaps you telling us how you came to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, Well, I was finishing, I think I just finished an MA in uh, Canadian Studies. My focus was really... The cultural studies end of that and popular music studies. I was looking at um, uh, questions of identity, gender, sexuality, and race in a really bass-centric um, music culture, jungle or, or drum and bass, and particularly in Toronto. And this, you know, came out of a, a long-standing interest in these kinds of things, following hip-hop and, you know, rave and, and jungle and all that uh, before. And um, So this was summer of 2005. My wife and I ended up in London, in this very small basement, which I actually describe in the book, um, being pummeled by bass. And um, this was a place called Plastic People, uh, an event called Forward. And this was where early dubstep was was being developed. Um, A lot of of low-end, maybe a few hi-hats, little voice sample, and very little else. And we're in this small space... And just being, you know, um, over, overwhelmed, knocked around by, by bass. Um, it felt like it was coming out of my mouth. I had to open my mouth to let the pressure out. My ears were kind of being pushed out from the outside. My eyeballs were vibrating and so on. And um, as, as I say in the book, you know, I, I'm kind of being, you know, literally shaken out of certain academic habits, which were to, you know, largely avoid Sensation certainly the materiality of things in favor of you know uh, questions of textuality right like reading everything the idea that you can read everything um, as if it were a book whether it's a picture or a sound or a piece of music or uh, a space whatever and so that it really came to me um, in that in that setting that this was this sort of this gaping you know, empirical and theoretical area that that people hadn't really dealt with.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, your book begins with a description of what it's like to be on a dance floor, maybe that dance floor, Mm -hmm. uh, inundated by the almost overwhelming experience of the power of a massive sound system. And you say that when bass is vibrating at these low frequencies and at great volume, it has a material effect on our environment such that we not only hear the sound, but perceive it as a physical sensation as well. You allude to your personal experience with this, and you include a lovely vignette about a girl dancing and responding to deep bass music that draws on aquatic language. Such swimming metaphors are in fact quite apropos, you explain, because high sound pressure levels like the ones created by bass-pumping sound systems do in fact condense air, thicken it, and make it feel heavier. Heavy bass vibrations can also induce feelings of buoyancy, disrupt balance, as well as generally cause the entire body to vibrate along with it. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that for those sorry souls out there who've never had the experience Mm -hmm. of, um, of this firsthand Mm -hmm. because like you, I, I've been there in London with the massive bass, uh, and, and I think for a lot of people who have never felt that it's, it's hard to understand how thoroughly that impacts you physically. Yeah.
0: You know, there's, um, a fantastic documentary about UK sound system culture uh, called Musically Mad, and I think it's Mikey Dredd being interviewed, and he says, you know, I can talk to you all night about sound systems, but you have to feel sound systems to know what they're about. Right. Um. And I actually, you know, I think that's sort of the assumption a lot of the time in, in writing. So part of what I was aiming to do here was, as as best I could, kind of try to put the reader in that sonic space. So, you know, we'll probably talk later about theories of affect and materiality, but I tried also to write in an affective way, a way that could, in some way, help you sort of perceive that kind of that kind of experience.
1: That's awesome. And as you were saying earlier, there's not a lot of people doing that right now in sound studies?
0: Yeah, not a lot. Um, more... More now certainly when I started it was kind of out in left field. Um, uh, there is a bit more going on, but I, you know, part of the idea with the book was to really kind of kind of push people in that direction, and I hope that it's, I do hope that it's taken as a challenge or invitation to to pick up these questions that are less familiar, because I found in grad school it's pretty It's pretty easy to to figure out what sort of norms are what's kind of expected right um you learn to speak a certain language <laughs> because it goes over well and there are a lot of important things still to to be dealt with with that uh with that kind of language that emphasizes things like you know textuality and um, aspects of identity and so on and they're not absent from what I'm doing but i I am challenging people to come at it from a different direction. I I think there's a quote early on from Kojwo Eshin um, that, you know, suggests, like, at least let's try it. Let's just give it a shot for once and and see what happens. So, you know, with this, I'm saying, what if we didn't start with this, you know, uh, quote-unquote site or this uh, identifiable group, this sort of cultural specificity? What if we followed vibration around from place to place so we don't we don't look at like um a very say toronto the toronto jungle scene we don't go okay so what does base mean in this place instead we kind of we follow vibration around and we see how people are engaging with it in various places okay
1: You've gestured a little bit at um, uh, your theoretical approach. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to talk about that a little bit uh, because it is fairly dense, but it's still accessible, I think. Um, You explain how you see your work is fitting into a larger theoretical landscape of cultural studies. Um, the ever-expanding range of study that is subject to linguistic and literature-derived analytical models, which you kind of mentioned there, Mm -hmm. as well as sound studies. Uh, You say that this is a landscape that tends to discredit immediate material experiences in favor of interpreting them as mediated and cerebral events, And in the context of music studies, this tends to mean that how music sounds and feels is often left out of the equation, even though this is the dimension privileged by participants. So you argue that more attention needs to be paid to the role of sensation in sonic culture. Mm -hmm. So I got that right? Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. um, And, you know, something that I noticed doing the research, I I do a lot of um, sort of rereadings of other texts. There's a a book by Lloyd Bradley called... uh, is it base cultures? Base culture? I forget. Um and it's about it's a history of reggae. And um, you know, base gets discussed. There are some interesting anecdotes, but it doesn't really get beyond that. Base has tended to be treated as kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. You kind of gesture to its its weirdness, but right. you kind of leave it at that. Right. So that's what I what I wanted to um what I wanted to explore. Um and I'm sorry, I forget exactly um what uh what you're pointing to and oh, yeah, was, just uh, just
1: how you're trying to thread the needle kind of between the science element mm. and the um the cultural studies sure. element.
0: That's the other thing, right? Because we're within the humanities we've become very accustomed to critiquing science or the the um you know, the alleged objectivity or sort of infallibility of science. Right. Um, but, you know, in my experience, that can, that can kind of go overboard. I found even in sensory studies, there was this very explicit uh, idea that you should kind of keep science at arm's length. And my, my thought was, well, how are you really going to deal with, with, you know, sensory experience without engaging that? We don't have to go full on into... Um, You know neuroscience or something like that, but there must be some way to 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 bridge the two. And this is where I found uh, the theorist Brian Masumi quite quite helpful because this is something that he's working with. You know, in his uh, in his book Parables for the Virtual, he's dealing with this this notion of affect, which is um, uh, a bit of a difficult concept. We can see it as. Being related to sensation, it's often equated with emotion. Um, in fact, it's often taken to be the same thing as emotion. But Masumi Masumi says, and he's following um, Deleuze, who's following Spinoza, um, that emotion is what he calls qualified affect. So affect tends to be something that kind of passes through us. It's it's kind of unnameable. It's um, it's kind of outside of of language, when we when we give it a name, that's when it becomes emotion, some like nameable, recognizable thing. Okay. Okay. So that's where he's what he's doing with you know affect in sort of a basic sense. With science, um, he you know he's trying to look at how matters of affect and sensation work. You know how the human body is engaging with things. Um, he finds it necessary to draw on science, but in a, in a critical way but not an overly critical way. He says, um, I think really helpfully, he says we can poach from the sciences right. without being sort of beholden to their their methods right. or their sort of standards. Um, I think towards the end, he says, um, you know, science, philosophy, and art all have, you know, different claims to reality. They all speak to reality, the same reality, but in different ways. And none of those claims is, should really be prioritized over the other. They're simply different angles on it. So that was kind of a, a core idea for me running through this. So, you know, what I ended up doing was going to a lot of scientific literature on low-frequency sound and finding the sort of... Um, the the things that kind of get that kind of get left out the marginal stuff that is treated as just marginal um rather than you know examples of you know anomalies that can be really really rich territory if we if we follow them through right so i talk about you know the spectral sonically but also among populations there are those of us who will feel things um differently from the majority mm-hmm. right um we might be outside of sort of the um the the majority or the average but there's something to be learned as well from those sort of anomalous experience anomalous sort of sensitivities and so on
1: fantastic um, I don't know if we won't have uh, the time to quickly uh, talk about Sun-Ra. I, I want to get back to Sun-Ra later, sure. as you do. But um, at the beginning, you talk about uh, Sun-Ra's use of the term myth science.
0: Yeah, so that that served a couple of purposes for me. And the original title of this project was actually, um, actually a bit punchier. It was called Base Myth Science of the Sonic Body. <laughs> and, um, you know, it... I think uh, I agreed with the publisher. It'd probably be better to have something that was sort of more straightforward. But I, I do have a soft spot for that that former title. Um, so Sun Ra, the um, the famous jazz musician, <clears throat> whose career spanned you know from the big band era into you know the introduction of electronics into jazz. He's one of the first people, period, using synthesizers in music. Um, he claimed he was from Saturn. Uh-huh. And Tried to dress like he was from Saturn. Yeah, and there was this kind of notion around him, this kind of discourse around him, oh, you know, Sun Ra's, Sun Ra's crazy. Um, John Swed, uh, his uh, biographer, and others have argued that this is really um, a misinterpretation of what was going on there. You know, when Sun Ra said that I'm not of this planet, this is someone who grew up in the Deep South um, when... Um, when African Americans were regularly being lynched, there was um, no no justice for that and he said, "You know if this is humanity i 'm not human. if this is planet earth i 'm not from here i 'm from a better place right so this is this is where his myth science comes from, and this could be extended in a lot of directions and what I liked about it was that it could it could help me kind of um do that poaching from the sciences. Um, deal with the sort of mystifying dimensions of sonic experience. And I found that it worked really well with Kojo Eshin's uh concept of sonic fiction on one hand. So these are all the sort of I mean the idea is kind of musics that have a sonic fiction or science fictional dimension. So sun ra obviously, but you find this in hip hop and elsewhere. Um, and there's a
1: lot of it, even in contemporary, um, uh, well, drum and bass, yep. as well as dubstep, and, yeah, and
0: R and B recently as well. Really, okay. yeah. Um, the other concept that fits that I found fit in with my sort of extended idea of myth science was nomad science from Deleuze and Guattari. Okay, French theorists who were very much about um, uh, not taking a like a transcendent overall approach to things, the sort of thing that we inherit from. Descartes and people who follow, but something much more inductive so like exploratory and this is this is really key to how I approach things and I find it a lot in how people have have um, explored and used and experimented with base right sort of like um, sort of following what happens if I do this if I do this if I do this sort of prodding tweaking, trying to like extract new weird stronger intensities from from experience.
1: And that's a method that uh, recalls earlier scientists. Well, exactly. Those kind of exploratory methods that you just follow where it goes.
0: Exactly. And that's the point that Deleuze and Guattari make, is that this was how science proceeded um, early on when it was not really distinguishable from magic. Um, Right. The two two were of the same family. Yeah. Um, So you have, in their view, you've got theorematic uh, science, which they call royal science, with capital R and capital S, and then there's nomad science, which is really more that sort of um, radically empirical kind of approach, as um, you might say, following William James, who kind of figures into this, too.
1: Wow. Okay. So chapter two focuses on what you term as inadvertent encounters with unheard vibrations. Uh, Those typically emerge from a natural or industrial source and exceed the usual definitions of sound. These uh, infrasounds are understandably very mysterious-seeming, and you write that they're frequently interpreted as hauntings because of the way they give one a sense of activity by an unseen agent. So can you give us some examples of that?
0: Yeah, sure. So infrasound means, you know, literally below sound. It's below the audible range, so we're not talking so much volume as frequency. The human ear, if you buy, say, headphones, the headphone box will say, you know, it reproduces from 20 hertz to 20,000. That's usually considered the, the range of human hearing. Volume and everything plays a role in that. But um, below 20 hertz is infrasound. So hertz means cycles per second. That means how often that thing, you know, beats per second. Um, when we start to head toward 20 hertz and then below it, um, things get weird. Things get weird if there's enough sound pressure involved. So this is another thing about, you know, how we hear. Um, in the sort of 3, 4 hertz range, so that's three 4,000 cycles per second, okay. um, that's where the most um, important parts of speech occur, like for intelligibility. And so in that range... Um, we can hear, you know, uh, well, that's, that's where a whisper will happen, right? For, for the ear to perceive something at that bottom end of, of audibility at an equal volume to a whisper requires more or less about a million times the acoustic force right so when we're dealing with these low pressure these low frequency sounds if they're oh. perceivable they're very strong i see yeah, yeah it's it it's a bit confusing until you go okay yeah there's it's it's a matter of like to even grasp it there has to be a lot of force um enough force to say blow out a candle right um to maybe you know, move something that's very lightweight um okay, so when we're heading into that into that range, other parts of the sensorium are picking things up probably possibly well in advance of the ear or um at least out of sync with the ear, so you might have say um one of the more prominent effects is um you know stimulation of the inner ear which you mentioned earlier that's where motion and balance and stuff are felt ah so that's um, why it causes the yeah. disorientation and so with this with this sort of haunting idea you you run into you run into these anecdotes of people having felt presences and other kind of other anomalies that uh even you know um Uh, goosebumps can be brought on by frequencies in that range. Okay. And so these things that you, you know, you tend to think like the goosebumps come after I'm scared, but it could be low frequency sound causing the goosebumps to to pop up and then you go, goosebumps, I must be scared. There must be something (laughs) scary here, right? Yeah. Um, So I was dealing with these stories where people were sensing presences and then it was like traced back to... A source of infrasound. And the big name here is Vic Tandy, who was a British scientist who um, had a a very alarming experience where he was in his laboratory, which people had said was haunted, and he found that his uh, fencing blade, which he had put in a vise, you know, so this is a foil, it's just very thin, it's vibrating wildly. And the night before he'd, you know, been looking around thinking there was just like a figure right next to him. Huh. Uh it turned out to be a faulty ventilation fan sending infrasound into the space. And then huh. he did a he did um exploration of another site and acoustically it was prone to producing um infrasonic resonances. So, you know, from there, I I start to theorize, you know, how this, how this works. Um, And I looked at another phenomenon called the hum, which is, uh, um, if you're in Britain, you may have heard about the Bristol hum. We apparently have one in Windsor. There's a famous one in Taos, New Mexico. These hums exist around the world, and they're experienced, you know, I was talking about spectrality, um, experienced only by a, you know, small spectrum of the human population, but they experience it so intensely that it, it can drive them a little bit crazy. Like, wow. it's this low-frequency, usually kind of throbbing sound that most people can't hear. Um, most noise uh, testing equipment is not calibrated right. to pick it up because it's not considered audible. Yeah. Um, so if you have people experiencing something that's not audible and the equipment is not made to pick up things that aren't audible, you'll get a result that says, there's nothing here. And this is kind of a recurring thing. There's actually, I think, a bit of a debate in Ottawa right now about public noise and and big events and stuff that uh, comes down to that. So I treat the hum, you know, as another type of haunting, a very, like, uh, they're probably both, they probably both have industrial and other origins. Um... But the sort of really compelling quote that I got from a hum researcher was that if if you locate the source, it's not the hum. Because almost by definition, the hum is unfindable. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so chapter three... You begin looking at the phenomenon of bass-making technologies that can be found around the world over and throughout history. Mm -hmm. You remark on the fact that we can find many examples of tremendous effort, skill, and resources being used for creating the effects of deep vibratory sound. And while there isn't any universal meaning that remains constant across cultures or anything like that, the fact of its common usage raises some really interesting questions. Mm -hmm. So maybe could you start by telling us about what you term the monstrous sonorities of the medieval organ?
0: Sure. Okay, so I love the pipe organ, and the pipe organ is something that I came to via the sound system. And, you know, I mentioned early on that... uh, this started on dance floors, but it so quickly led everywhere else. And the, again, we're getting to this idea of like following it around and, and seeing where it leads. So, yeah, base-making technologies in all these religious cultures. The organ, the organ goes back to, it's like about a 2,000-year-old machine. It's where the science of uh, hydraulics is first sort of discovered and investigated, and later on pneumatics... Um so it's kind of like a scientific test bed as science is being invented. It um it comes from I think it's not exactly clear. Um the 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 person who invented it, his name is it's Greek, Tsebios. I'm not sure how okay. to pronounce it, may have been um uh, it may have been Greek, but he may have Um, come from around what is now Iraq. Anyway, so this thing has been developed for centuries. Um, It kind of goes back to the East for a long time during the Dark Ages in Europe, Uh, becomes this really mythical kind of thing. It starts to come back, and it's not a very refined technology. So when I talk about the monstrous sonorities of the medieval pipe organ, I'm talking about this machine that, based on reports, could have been quite huge. Like, there's one famous um, depiction of the, the organ at Winchester in England, um, and I always get this a little bit wrong, but audible at five miles, painful at two, deadly at one. Something oh my gosh! Like this. <laughs> Whether or not a, that's totally true, yeah. you you get the picture, right? Yeah. And you find these these um, these uh, images from from about that time, a little bit after of these huge wind-driven things. So you imagine, like, bellows that you'd use for a fire. Huge bellows, people having to run upstairs, grab the handle, use their body weight to pull it down, and then run back up the stairs again. So this is where the the force is coming from. Uh, We're talking about the Middle Ages, so, you know, woodworking and all these things are not terribly refined um, so the the wind chest is leaky, it's creaky it vibrates a lot likewise the pipes but you know another really interesting idea that I came across um, in a um, in a it's actually a sort of an early sound studies piece and it looks I think at the organ at Notre Dame cathedral it says well maybe this wasn't meant to be, maybe wasn't capable quite, but it also wasn't necessarily meant to be, you know, a perfect musical instrument. Uh, You find other quotes, like uh, um, a priest from around that time talking about, you know, these roaring and jangling sounds that just sort of reduced the body to like this quivering mass, basically. And so, you know, I run across a couple of people who, who say that you know, maybe it was it was the force. It was the pain it induced. It was the fright that it could induce. Um, through, you know, low tones, sheer volume, distortion, all this. Um, a fellow named Bruce Holsinger has written a book about, um, uh, what's the musical body in pain? I forget if that's the chapter or if it's the book. But, um, you know, he talks about how church music in the Middle Ages um it was part of an overall program which, you know, frightened people into a sort of submissive belief. And um he says, you know, at this time you know, Gregorian chant, which we tend to think of, you know, I remember it kind of comes back pretty big in the 90s and yeah. it's it's new agey, it's really washy I had a and reverberant Chan exactly. Deep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um probably yeah, every one of our generation <laughs> uh had you know had something like that. So, um, but he says at the time, Gregorian chant was inseparable from the image and the sting of Gregory's whip. Oh, literally whipping people, literally hitting, hurting people, the um, members of the choir, um, young students, and so on. So this is a, a violent period in religious culture, and it's expressed through this through this machine. It would seem. Huh. Yeah.
1: Wow. It's amazing. You wouldn't uh, you certainly wouldn't know that now. Walking into a big cathedral mm-hmm. with a great big pipe organ at the back. Well, you talk about the Baroque period, saying that at that time we find a much more refined base technology, and uh, you call it an explicit program of affect engineering that is coolly systematic in its effort. To seduce the flesh into mm-hmm. belief, so there's a slightly different uh, yeah absolutely there. so
0: everything's gotten like you say more refined um, <clears throat> the machine is simultaneously quieter in the sense that it's not producing all these distortions and vibrations and things and more powerful because it can hold on to its air more mm-hmm. effectively can project it more effectively um, <clears throat> and so at this time too you've got um, you've got early protestant efforts to turn this into something like a science there's um, um a program called the doctrine of the affections which gets applied here and the basic idea there is is you know observing how bodies respond to um to music in religious space and you know tweaking that to get the the most intense responses and um the response is most conducive to producing belief or reinforcing belief. Um, so this is not affect exactly as Misumi or Deleuze and Gutari would talk about it, but there is certainly a relationship there. And this idea of it being coolly being systematic, you know, goes back to this idea of... Um, observing, kind of trying to dispassionately observe and make something like a science out of, out of working on bodies.
1: Right, right. Uh, by the Gothic period, um, there's something uh, called the Gothic Assemblage in which churches attempted to create in their congregation uh, a feeling of heavenly ascent through the combination of light, space, and extracochlear vibration. Um, so that sounds really amazingly ambitious and really technical for the time.
0: Ambitious bullet beyond anything that we can really fathom right now, um, taking decades and even centuries to to build these cathedrals, devoting you know amounts of resources that we can't even really imagine these days, and to produce something that is considered not just a monument to God but really a vector that through which, you know, we can be transmitted heavenward and it can be transmitted down to us. Um, And I talk about it in terms of a Gothic assemblage because I'm looking now um, even more so at like a total synesthetic project, I call it, where all of the senses are being... Uh, worked on very intensely. I should also note, like we've gone Baroque and now Gothic, and we tend to think of those historically reversed. But if these if these um, um, uh, churches are taking so long to be built, then they're they're some of them being completed after the Baroque period or during the Baroque period. So it gets it gets blurred that okay. way. Um, the point being that you've got these these churches that are kind of kind of science fictional almost in in their um, hugeness, their technological um, um, sophistication and so on. And you've got this very powerful machine. There's this idea that the, the size of the church actually forces the organ to get bigger and more powerful. So it's doing its thing, but you've also got these efforts to sort of unsteady people with uh, weird mixtures of light, for example, um, stained glass, huge windows are suddenly, not suddenly, but they're now possible. And the idea with, with Gothic was to make this kind of like skeletal structure uh, by the standards of the time, kind of impossible looking structure. Like how is this how is this thin, light looking thing that seems to be sort of flying in these different directions? How is it even standing? How is it possible? And so there's this sort of like, vertiginous pull built into the into the architecture, like, kind of pulling you up. Um, there's the organ working on your vestibular system to kind of, like, make you feel floaty and stuff. You've got these weird mixtures of light, probably coming in from um, solid primary-coloured windows at the time, so blue, yellow, red, making like, um, different mixtures of colour in the space. You've got the smells and everything, the, the the incense and so on. So the idea with the Gothic assemblage and the total synesthetic project is that sort of every everything is being worked on to sort of unsteady people, give them a sense of sort of something tending toward that upward flight that um, that is um, being sort of proposed there. And you have to remember, too, that uh, there was no effort to, to translate the Bible into local languages at right, the time, right? So right. it's all happening through, you know, what you feel, what you see, hear, and otherwise feel. And, and my focus is off, is very much on what you otherwise feel, through viscera, vestibular, um, fear, like all these things working together.
1: Wow, that, that paints uh, an incredible
0: picture. And Ecstasy too, I should say, in that situation. Not just fear, because you've got fear right. more in the earlier period, but really something that's, yeah, sort of heavenly. My
1: goodness. Yeah, I had no idea that that is what was going on when you walk into a cathedral now. Um, uh, Next, you focus on some different secular examples of the exploration of various facets of sound, uh, starting with what is called the cymatic arts. So can you perhaps explain for our listeners what cymatic means and give us some examples?
0: Sure, and I've just now drawn a blank on the... um Name of the person who theorized cymatics. I don't know if you've noted it there.
1: Um, I've got the German sound artist Thomas Koner, but he's an artist, yep. so probably so I, not the theorist.
0: Yeah, I uh, I talk about him. That's actually one of the parts that I enjoyed writing the most. Um, let's just see if I can get the name really fast. Hans Jenny. So Hans Jenny theorizes cymatics, and his idea is you know, to th- find ways of visualizing... Sound. Well, not just visualizing sound, this is the thing that he's usually associated with. Um, if you look up Cymatics online, you'll tend to find pictures or videos of um, like a water cornstarch mixer in a speaker. Right. And it's jumping around in all these ways. And that's really fascinating because you're seeing something that sound does that you otherwise wouldn't be able to perceive. There's no way to quite grasp all that's going on. And, you know, my thought is, you know, the first, one of the first impressions we would have is sort of this like bodily felt question, like sort of, oh, me too, right? If that's how that works, um what's going on inside me? Uh, but he talks about cymatics in a much larger sense. Um Oceans, you know, wave patterns and so on but also, um, you know, mountain formation. You can view that as just a much, much, much slower-paced version of the same thing. So he's interested in, you know, um, that sort of... um, the sort of cyclic patterns that that structure a lot of the world. Um, And, you know, understandably, it's it's caught the attention of, of people interested in sound.
1: Great. Um, so I wanted to read a short quote from your book that I think will help our listeners grasp the intended effect of a cymatic work uh, by German sound artist Thomas Kohner, who explores the vibrations of metal and the movements of icebergs, among other things. Um, so you write that with regard to the latter, the, the icebergs, the goal is for the listener to experience, quote, becoming mineral An attempt to enter the sound world of the fossil and the ice mummy at no distance. Its success is not based on getting it right or exact. By the same token, any similarity to iceberg recordings is ultimately inconsequential. What matters is whether it works well enough to tilt bodily imagination towards processes and periodicities that are alien to it. As a cymatic investigation, it attempts to inhabit vibration, to grasp what it would be to sense it from within, rather than merely observing it at a remove.
0: Right, yeah, so I'll just, um, I'll clarify, so I've got, I'm talking about some uh, Iceberg recordings that were published online, and a very strong similarity to these Thomas Conner recordings. Um... Actually, if you if you slow down those I- iceberg recordings, they're they're sped up so that we can hear them because um, the frequencies involved were so low that they're inaudible. Um, so they're sort of arbitrarily pitched elsewhere. Um, Koner makes something that sounds kind of similar, but he's done it all with with recordings of gongs. So there's no field recording involved here, and I kind of compare. What he's done to actual field recordings um, and he records these gongs not with a, a microphone in a studio like we're using right now but with contact microphones they like they're suctioned on to the gong and they get the like the internal acoustics of it when it's struck so this is the basis of of his material but he's working with a, sort of a sonic fiction like I mentioned earlier Kojo Eshin talks about sonic fictions, um, particularly in terms of instrumental music, where there, there are no words, there's nothing really to guide you apart from, you know, images, sleeve notes, and things like that. Koner's images, and sleeve notes all revolve around um, early explorers of the Arctic and a little bit Antarctica as well. Getting lost freezing, and basically getting absorbed into the ground. Um, so this is sort of where the ice mummy comes in. Uh, what I'm trying to deal with here is how an artist uses sound to sort of put the listener in a, in a situation that's otherwise not perceivable um and i'm i'm using this idea from deleuze and guattari and others of uh, of inhuman becomings how do we kind of again how do we sort of perceive beyond our human sensorium and uh that's that's kind of the the core idea core idea here
1: cool um Another really fascinating and unusual example of the vibratory arts is something called incipient dance. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and about the work of Mark Bain, a seismic artist who builds portable earthquake machines, which Mm -hmm. sounds pretty amazing. So what is that about?
0: Yeah. Um, So Mark Bain, like you said, he's a sound artist. He he, um, describes his work in seismic terms. He's done things like... um, taken uh, seismic recordings of the Twin Towers falling during 9-11 and making them audible, sonifying it. describes that as the screamingness of the earth when they, when they crumble to the ground. Uh, the one that I focus on primarily is uh, an installation that he did in a disused missile silo. And he looked at this missile silo, which has a floating floor, I don't know exactly how that works, but I think it's on, is it on sand? I don't remember what it's on. But he he looks at it and says, this is not unlike a speaker. Mm. And in his previous work, he has used mechanical oscillators, so something that creates a vibration at a low frequency, um, to resonate large structures. So he finds the resonant frequency. If you think... You know, the good way to think about what resonance can do is, you know, the the image of the opera singer and, and the wine glass shattering. Right. They're hitting that pitch at which that body um, doesn't just vibrate, but um, amplifies itself to the point of its own destruction. So he's done similar things short of destruction to bridges and, and other things. In the live room, this one in the missile silo, he he resonates this this whole space, and he actually covers the floor with sand. So you get these like cymatic arrangements of of sand that that show us the the frequencies passing through. Um, and what he does is he gets people to just enter and explore and what he finds when he's changing the frequencies when he's sending different frequencies through this massive speaker through these bodies collected on it is that he can kind of make them respond in different ways so we have something you know a little bit like that idea of 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 um of working on the body in the baroque period trying to induce certain certain things uh he found that people sort of they would move kind of together, like a collectivity kind of forms. And sound, they're not like going, oh sound, I'm going to dance to it. They're really being danced by sound. They're they're being brought into movement by sound. So incipience, you know, refers to you know, the becoming of something. Something's on its way to to another condition. And so I'm I'm looking at this idea of incipient dance in terms of the way that sound can be used to Bring us into movement collectivity uh, collectively, rather than us just sort of interpreting sound again as text, right like how will I move to the sound based on my background, what it represents, um, you know how we 're all operating in a visual economy? all these things that popular music studies um, and related fields tend to go back to, so i 'm really looking at. And this, you know, brings us back to the dance floor eventually. How does an artist of whatever kind, an organist, you know, a sound artist in an installation, a DJ, how have they used low frequencies to induce collective motion?
1: Yeah, so that brings us back to the dance floor, which is where the book begins. Um, And that is with the use of deep bass technology in the service of music interacting with the sonic body through the language of dance. So Jamaican sound system culture is of great importance here, of course, as well as certain popular um, musics or musics made popular in clubs and on dance floors since the 1970s, give or take. Um, In these contexts, uh, bass fills much more than the supporting role that it has in Western musics, like pop, country, or rock, for example. So can we start with Jamaica? Can you give us a brief history of the Jamaican sound system culture?
0: Sure. Well, the importance of the sound system in Jamaica, maybe to simplify, but it boils down to uh, the fact that poorer people, poorer black people, didn't really have the resources or, uh, the venues to, um, play live music with bands. Um, so sound systems tend tended to fill that space. They also, um, the, the music that really sort of the music of the people rather than the, the ruling class didn't really feature on the radio. So to have, you know, collective music culture, uh, people developed these sound systems, which started in, um, I think, largely shop windows and so on, but then become their own entities and then become these sort of cultural centers. Someone like uh, Norman Stolzoff has actually linked this back to, he says, you know, the dance hall goes back to early slave days and and those musical congregations. He sees it as an extension. But, of course, you know, post-war, this gets heavily technologized, and really, a lot of contemporary dance music culture, and I mean across the board, um, owes its way of operating to Jamaica, to the powerful sound system, and to the advent of the DJ as performer, and then also from that, the advent of remixing and all this. But bass has always been, you know, very central there. And um, the competition between sound systems really helped sort of intensify that. Yeah.
1: You tell us, uh, or you use the term bass science, um, and you allude to the expression drop-in science. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. Um, if you follow hip-hop and also drum and bass and other things, this word science keeps recurring. And the idea that I'm really working with here is that it it tends to be about some element of mystification. Uh, Rhythm science is a term that's been applied, say, to the very fractured, complex, sort of um, almost M.C. Escher-like rhythms that you'd find in, in 90s uh, jungle uh, vocal science was a term applied to chopped up vocals where an original bit of speech is cut up in in ways that turn you know um, gasps and and other sounds into rhythmic components, textural components, and so on almost percussion sometimes yeah percussive, certainly. Um, confusing in terms of what's being said your imagination is drawn in to try to figure out what, uh, what is actually being said um, base science is another term that you'll come across and I've used it here to, to describe you know, this, this thing that I've been tracing all the way through from you know, the middle ages and earlier uh, where people are sort of trying to mystify the body with, uh, with unusual perceptions of sound
1: Okay, fantastic. Um, And that kind of uh, goes to what I was going to ask you about next, and that goes back to uh, the poet and jazz musician Sun Ra. Um, Let's talk about how he used his music uh, intentionally to defamiliarize the world uh, in his effort to conjure a new reality.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately unfortunately I never saw uh, Sun Ra live, but it was a very immersive experience, certainly one that was meant to um, unsteady audiences and and draw them into his world, out of theirs and into his world. Um,
1: He can be found on YouTube. For any uh, listener who's interested, there's some snippets on YouTube that'll give you a sense.
0: Yeah, so sonically, visually, with costumes and other, other things. And, you know, being, like I said, one of the early... Users of uh synthesizers and um trying to produce sound worlds that hadn't literally had not been experienced before um, so th- yeah there are many d- directions with sunra, uh <laughs> many facets of this myth science and this sort of um, otherworldliness
1: okay um So then we turn to the musics on the bassy end of the EDM spectrum, if we can forgive the use of the term. Um, So we're talking here about stuff like UK jungle, garage, drum and bass, and breakbeat. Um, Is there more that you can tell us about those in particular and their relation to bass science?
0: Yeah, I mean, bass has, like I say, been foundational. You get it certainly from Jamaica, but it was also important in disco. Um, I tend to look at the... 1970s with you know dub and the sound system and then disco and then following them hip hop and then you know um synth pop via Kraftwerk and so on as sort of foundational to everything that we we have now and certainly within that sort of dub to disco spectrum base is um is really prominent i think i've got an anecdote in there about uh I think it was the Paradise Garage. So we're at the end of end of disco, the beginning of house and garage, which is really the the beginning of our current moment. And they're experimenting with, you know, speaker placement and stuff. And they they discover that if you put a, a an open backed bass speaker in a corner, it actually uses the entire room as its cabinet, the thing that it derives sonic force from. So you you literally have people putting the dance floor inside a speaker. Um, when you get to you know, well hip hop of course has always had um, an interest in bass and when you got um, when you get that electro element emerging early on, that eight oh eight bass drum. I mean we, we look at music now like trap. It goes back to that goes back to in a sense planet rock and the and the eight oh eight Roland eight oh eight drum machine. Uh, Rave gives way to jungle jungles drawing on on the dance hall you've got that low end you've got these very fast rhythms with bass lines typically running at half time so you've got this this fractured rhythm kind of pulling the body in all these directions and this deep bass like kind of pulling it downward or sort of propelling it um we get to. Dubstep, I already mentioned. You know, around that early period, 2003, 4, 5. There's not a lot of mid-range. It's it's like all sub, and just just enough high end in the rhythm to to give it kind of a um, a slinky kind of rhythm. Very different from the sort of uh, you know skrillex type of thing that we associate the word dubstep with now. This was really a division of frequencies between just like I say, this kind of slinky u k garage gr- rhythm, and then sub just working on the body
1: and some of it removes the drum entirely yeah. and creates the rhythm just with the the deep bass, so you have yep. uh, tracks that really focus on developing just that deep bass alone yeah. which which I love
0: yeah no, <laughs> it's a, and it 's a like i say it 's a f- phenomenal and like, as you know, a phenomenal experience to uh to hear that just emphasized on its own, um, when I was in that in that space and forward, you know, you've got uh, you've got that, that enveloping base, and then these like there are sometimes these uh, samples of just breath. So you're struggling to figure out if you're breathing or not, (laughs) and this system is, like, projecting the sound of strained breath at you as well. It's really really disorienting.
1: Yeah. Many people find uh, that the never-ending subgenres of electronic music are a bit overwhelming or just annoyingly impossible to follow. Um, This is, of course, a reflection of how rapidly the music evolves or how much it lends itself to permutation and evolution. Um, you use a metaphor of an operating system that you call a rhythm machine sure. to kind of explain this process, sure. if I if I got you correctly there. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that metaphor.
0: Sure. Um, so I've mentioned um, Kojo Eshin a couple of times already. Uh, this comes from his book, More Brilliant Than the Sun, Adventures in Sonic Fiction, uh, where he's, because I've talked about Sonic Fiction already, he talks about this, these various aspects of um, the science as well. Uh, the thing I would say about The Rhythm Machine is it's actually not a metaphor. Um, it's uh, via him. I'm trying to really look at this as a literal operating okay, system. Okay. A, a way of, of operating in on a couple of levels. Um, when we talk about rhythm machines you can use that in place of style or genre or something you could look at house as kind of like a meta machine and all these different subgenres as rhythm machines within it uh and those individual rhythm machines they will have like very narrowly defined often um parameters in terms of the tempo so the beats per minute sometimes like that period of dubstep we're talking about, you'd find a range of only about three beats per minute, 137 to 140, maybe. Okay. Uh, footwork, faster kind of thing, a lot of 808 kick drums. It's so fast, it's so complicated. There's barely, like, a a perceivable continuity right. sometimes that I think a lot of those producers produced at exactly the same tempo so that it works in the DJ mix. Because... Uh, you know, a, a record, or maybe not a record anymore, but a, a track made to be used in one of those mixes, it's not really a song, it's a track, it's open-ended. It's each, the beginning and the end are meant to be woven with other stuff. So in that sense, you can you can imagine, like an overall operating system, you can imagine that the tracks themselves as software, and they conform to the needs of an operating system, so that in the DJ mix they work. But I'm also looking at those kind of trying to extend further formation into how those rhythm machines um and those kind of operating systems they are actually ways of operating on bodies. They're ways of orchestrating or at least potentializing bodies in certain ways. So I like I use the um the term capacitance and I'm thinking actually of, you know, a capacitor in electronics, a capacitor takes in electricity it holds on to it and it releases it at whatever rate it's uh being told to and i'm looking at how these rhythm machines uh do similar type of types of stuff you know they they inject they literally inject energy into a space into a collectivity into a group and they will have their own ways these different styles or rhythm machines. They have their own ways of trying to bring bodies into motion, uh, of of directing that energy. So it does sound a bit abstract, but I'm trying to make... Actually, I like something that Misumi says. He says that, you know, the problem is not really about theory getting into abstract. He says real life is really, really complex, we need to try to find language that's appropriate to it, and that's actually a key idea through the whole the whole book. Right. We I don't think we've had adequate language for this for this type of stuff. So it's an experiment in developing a language, and certainly inviting people to experiment with that more. Uh, don't worry about inventing terms and concepts and stuff do it because we need it. And the music suggests it. The The music comes with its own concepts, so in in a sense we kind of have to decode them as well.
1: Great. Okay. Um, So your conclusion is entitled, Where Next? As you point out, deep bassy sounds permeate our culture more than ever now. Uh, Pop music commonly incorporates dubstep elements now, for example, Mm -hmm. but we also see a deeper range in non-music-based contexts like home theaters and in other places. So one might imagine that this suggests that interest in the effects of bass and sub-bass will continue to grow. Uh, in your conclusion, you express the hope that your research may suggest a way for audiology and the study of sonic culture to benefit from communicating with each other rather than remaining on either side of the science humanities divide as they may perceive themselves present- presently. So your conclusions asks, what next? Can you speak to that a bit?
0: Hmm. Um... I'm not sure I know right now. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I. There are a lot of ideas in here, and I'm hoping that they can be picked up on in, in various ways, but I do hope that, and I think this has begun to happen more since, um, certainly since I started writing this, th- I think there is now more interest in the materiality of things. Um, in dealing with the sensory aspects of music and and uh, all these different dimensions. So I think the what next is kind of like an in, an invitation to um to just kind of go on from here and see what else what else we can do with that. Follow it. the nomad yeah.
1: science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent.
0: And you know, I end with a permutation of that uh that famous idea from Spinoza you know he says what can a body do I'm saying what more can a sonic body do okay um I don't think we'll ever be quite sure what it can do but we can keep exploring it to see to see what's there and it can keep sort of teaching us as well
1: fantastic well Paul we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go can you tell us what you're currently working on
0: sure I've got a few things um in the works this fall, so fall 2017, I'm looking at starting a new web project, possibly podcast, called A People of Oscillators uh, dot com that uh, will look quite a bit at synthesis, especially modular synthesis, you know, these ones that look like big telephone switchboards. Uh, I've become really fascinated with that. Uh, I was recently in Calgary looking at um, some of the collection at the National Music Centre, including a huge custom-built device called Tonto, which had been... It was started in 1968. It's a room-sized modular synthesizer. I got to spend a lot of time, have sort of a private tour with that. So I think we'll be kicking off with that. I've got a number of other um, things planned for that. So that's a peopleofoscillators.com. I have uh, a couple of other things on the go. One is a potential project on sort of stranger aspects of pop music. And there's a concept that has sort of haunted me from this book, this idea of the man-made unknown. I'm really interested in ways that humanly, you know, built technologies start to exceed our understanding of them. They start to kind of take on their own life. So that's, that's sort of an ongoing thing. We'll see what happens with it. But these are some of the areas that I'm probing at the moment.
1: Uh, that's uh, that's great. I look forward to following okay. that. Um, so I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully you can come back with further books in the future. That'd be great. So, uh, so thanks very much and goodbye.
0: Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.
2: I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Jason about his book, Low End Theory, Base, bodies, and the materiality of Sonic Experience. If you're interested in purchasing the book, I'm happy to tell you it's going to be available in softcover next month. You can find it on the publisher's website at bloomsbury.com and on Amazon as well. You can also find out more about Paul at one of his websites, www.ridim.ca, that's R I D D I M.ca, deeptime.net slash blog. Or at his upcoming site, apeopleofoscillators.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland, that's at C A R R I E L Y N N L A N D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book interesting? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in secularism.